If you've got your Bibles with you, it would be good if you could turn to Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to read the the first 12 verses of that chapter. Now, for those of you who are visiting or maybe haven't been around for the last couple of weeks, we're we're beginning a series uh, on the kingdom of God. And, uh, And so this fits into that series. And really, we're at the moment kind of laying out some of the foundations. And so this is this is one of those foundation stones, I think, uh, about the kingdom. So I'm going to read the verse, first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow. Pretty hard-hitting stuff. So John the Baptist, I just want to uh, open by making a few remarks about John the Baptist. He's this kind of fairly enigmatic figure that just appears here in, in Matthew's Gospel. There's no note of him before this. If we want to find out about the situation around his birth, we have to read Luke's Gospel. Um, but here he just appears. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. What an introduction. And uh, it's interesting because God has been silent for a few hundred years. There's been no word from heaven. There's been this silence over the people of Israel. And then suddenly, in those days, John the Baptist appears. And uh, he's, he styles himself in the, in the way of the Old Testament prophets. Um, I thought about dressing like him this morning just to, to make a point. But, but I was just short of camel hair, so I, I couldn't. Um, but leather belt around his waist, garment of camel's hair. He had a, an interesting diet of locusts and wild honey, and he lived in the wilderness. But there was something attractive about him. All Jerusalem, all Judea, which is the area around Jerusalem, and all along the region of the Jordan, which was a, a north-south running river uh, in Palestine, were drawn to him. They came out to see what he had to say. 
And Jesus spoke extremely highly of him. They were cousins, uh, and you can read more about that in, in Luke. But Jesus described John the Baptist as, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's not bad from the greatest man ever to say that this is the greatest man ever. But he came with this message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he, he claimed, and Matthew claims, that he is the voice. The voice. That's what John the Baptist is described as. The voice that prepares the way for the Lord. And that harks back to Isaiah chapter 40, which Matthew quotes for us here. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I find it quite interesting that John the Baptist is called the voice because his father, Zechariah, is notable for when he was told he was going to have a son, lost his voice. And he only gained his voice back when he said, well, when he wrote, his name shall be John, and then he was able to speak. And so this man who his father had no voice is now the voice preparing the way of the Lord. And I think Luke gives us a little more detail about um, what his ministry will be. So in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, talking of John, it says, it is he who will go as a forerunner before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And this idea of a forerunner, it's this picture of kings as they were about to come into town would send ahead of themselves these heralds, these forerunners, who would announce the coming king. They would say, get ready, make a way, the king is about to come through with his entourage, the royal train is about to come into this place. And they would run ahead. And that's the picture of the ministry of John the Baptist, going ahead, preparing a way for the king to come. And his opening phrase, well, his message falls, as summarized here in Matthew 3, falls into three parts. The first part is, the king is on the way, so get ready. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It was a call to humility, it was a call to submitting oneself for the rule of God which was to come. But it was, it was scandalous as well. It was shocking to even say these sorts of things to the Jews. Because what John the Baptist was calling for was for these people to be baptized. Now that isn't baptism in the way we know and practice baptism. This was a baptism that the Gentiles had to go through in order to convert to Judaism. It was a self-administered process. Work that one out. Um, but they had to kind of take this special bath um, in order to be welcomed in. They also had to, if they were male, circumcise. I guess they got someone to help that with that. But um, that was the, another element of it. And they also had to offer sacrifices. And those three elements were the things that would mean that you as a Gentile could come in and convert to Judaism. So what John is saying here, notice that it was Jerusalem, Judea, and the region that were coming. That was a Jewish people group. And he was saying to them, you need to cleanse yourselves like these Gentiles do because you need to be clean. Shocking. Shocking. 
To tell the Jews that was bad enough. But then his words to the Pharisees and Sadducees certainly didn't pull any punches. You brood of vipers, etc. This was like red rag to a bull. Really kind of stirring up the the deep-seated beliefs that they were sons of Abraham and therefore fine, thank you very much. He would say, no, you are not. You need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So that was the first part of his message. The second part of his message was a warning about legalism and dead works and the fact that they have no place in this coming kingdom. We see that in verses 7 through 10. And, and then the final bit of his message was again just saying, the king is on the way. And this is what the king is like. He is great and he is awesome and he will do three things. He will save, he will baptise with fire, and he will judge. That's verses 11 and 12. Now, I would love to spend a lot of time looking at all of that, but we're not going to. I'm just going to focus today on the first part of his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think that's because, uh, well, partly it's because what God has prompted me to say, but as well, I think it's going to be significant for us as we move into thinking increasingly about this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God. Repentance, you see, is of primary importance. The first words John the Baptist says are, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. If you look into chapter 4 and verse 17, the first words, recorded words in Matthew's gospel, in terms of his public ministry, is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you flick over, I don't know, 100 pages, 50 pages, to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, in the account of Pentecost, Peter stands up and preaches and his first instruction to the people who have heard is, in verse 38 of Acts 2, repent and be baptised, each of you. There is something about baptism that is absolutely foundational. Sorry, about repentance, which is absolutely foundational, and baptism, but I'm not going to deal with that today. So, repentance. And repentance, it strikes me, it's one of those things that we talk about a lot. And that is a good thing to do. But I feel really drawn to this this morning. And to help us, I've got this working definition which we're going to look at. And that is that repentance is a change of mind that clears the way for the kingdom to advance and which flows out of being satisfied in God. And that's what I want to preach on this morning. So hopefully it's up there for you. Repentance is a change of mind that clears the way for the kingdom to advance and flows out of being satisfied in God. So firstly, repentance is a change of mind. Thayer's uh, wrote a a dictionary uh, of words in the New Testament, and in there they define repentance as this, to change one's mind for the better, heartily to amend with abhorrence of one's past sins. It was written a while ago. Simon Holly describes repentance in his book as a mind shift concerning the things of God. I find that extremely helpful. A mind shift concerning the things of God. Repentance is about a change of mind. It's a change in the way that we think. So what do I mean by that? Let me give you a fairly trivial example. This week, 
in our house, we've had some repenting going on. There's been a change of mind. The conversation begins July, August. Simon, it's a bit cold. Should I get you another jumper, love? Well, I was thinking more along the lines of heating, Simon. No. No, not yet. And we revisit that conversation a number of times, and then I kind of relent, repent, change my mind in October when I figured out how the heating system works. Trivial example, but that change of mind of now we can put the heating on has absolutely no impact at all unless I put the heating on. I've got to do something, otherwise the next day I no doubt I will have the same conversation again. A change of mind has happened. Now it is appropriate to put the heating on and action follows. Repentance is a change of mind, but action follows. It has to follow, otherwise it's not true repentance. And so repentance is a whole new way of thinking that leads to some sort of action. And Paul helpfully writes for us in Romans chapter 12 that, if I can find it, in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's talking about an ongoing transformation of your mind so that you look more and more like Jesus. But what's interesting about the rest of that chapter is it talks about what that looks like. So it talks about the fact that these people who have these mind transformations love without hypocrisy. They abhor evil and cling to good. They give generously. They rejoice in hope. They contribute to the needs of the saints. They practice hospitality. They bless and don't curse, etc., etc., This mind transformation results in action. You look different when you repent. And that's why John, when he's preaching, can say to the Pharisees and Sadducees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There should be something that comes as a result of repentance. Now, I think we often hear repentance emphasized solely, really, as part of initial salvation. Repent and be saved. Come on in. And that is that is right. And that's the message here for John. It's the message that Jesus brings at the start of his ministry. It's what Peter says at the end of his Pentecost sermon. Repentance is crucial in salvation. It is a key element of that. Why? Because at that point, a major mind shift has to happen. The most major of all. Why? Well, Paul says to us in Colossians 1.13 that we, at that point we are transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is a massive mind shift. It's nothing short of miraculous. And repentance is key to that. So it's right that we emphasize repentance as part of salvation in the, as kind of the first step, if you like. But that mind transformation must continue. And we see that, and we'll look at one of these examples later, but when you read the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, repentance is mentioned a few times in there. That's written to churches who are told that they need to repent. You see, it is an ongoing process. It is something which needs to continue. Repentance is mind change. 
but it's continual mind change as we're transformed to look increasingly like Jesus. So repentance, then, is a change of mind. Secondly, repentance is about clearing the way for the kingdom to advance. John the Baptist's message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand or imminent or within reach or able to be grasped. His message was repent, be baptized in water and come on into the kingdom. It was a call to action because the kingdom of God was there. It was that that herald going ahead of the king and saying, get ready people, the king is on his way. And repentance clears the way for that salvation to happen, if you like. I know they're kind of all tied up in the same sort of thing, but repentance clears the way for the forgiveness of sins, for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Acts again in a bit more detail. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. So this is the end of that Pentecost sermon. And Peter says to the crowd, which was sizable, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice what happens? It's repent, that's the first thing, and then these other things follow, not least the filling of the Holy Spirit. You see, repentance clears the way for God to move. It clears the way for the kingdom to advance. If you turn the page to Acts chapter 3, it's Peter preaching again. And in verse 19, he says, Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. So notice again, it's repent, that's the first thing they do, and then these things follow. The filling of the Spirit, times of refreshing, forgiveness of sins. There's something about repentance that needs to be at the start of the message because that then clears the way for things to follow. So, if repentance is mind change and continued mind change and and then actions follow and that when we repent it clears the way for the kingdom to advance, It seems to me that repentance is an act of war. It's an act of war because at the very root of it, the kingdom can only advance by the taking of ground. And whether that's an initial conversion, and I think if we look at that story in Acts where 3,000 are added to the day, I think it's fair to claim that the kingdom advanced a little bit on that day or whether it's the repentance that is involved in our continued growing to be more and more like Jesus, we are taking ground for the kingdom in both of those situations. And it seems obvious to me that if you're trying to advance a kingdom, then the boundaries of that kingdom are needing to be pushed out, and before they are, someone else is dwelling in those boundary places, if you like. That ground belongs to someone else. And if repentance, therefore, pushes those boundaries out, we are taking ground and, therefore, at war. It means, therefore, that a battle will ensue. 
It means that Satan won't give up that ground easily. And in fact, he tries to push back and reclaim ground which has already been taken. But the advance of the kingdom is about taking ground for the king. That's what it's about. It's about making his glory known to the very ends of the earth. And we know that the extent to where sin reigns will be judged. That was part of John's message. All that stuff about winnowing forks and threshing floors and so on. That is about judgment to come. It is judgment on sin. It is judgment on people who refuse to repent. The axe at the root of the tree that is rotten. And so repentance is needed for those people who still dwell in that domain of darkness. Why? So that they can come on into the kingdom. So that the kingdom can advance even into their lives. But in war, the enemy doesn't give up easily. And in this war, Satan does not give up easily. But there is some good news. And that is, he is defeated. I was expecting you to be slightly more excited about that. <laughs> okay. He is defeated. He is defeated. That means sin is defeated. Has absolutely no power over us. Why? We have the victory in Christ. That is what we've been singing this morning. By his death and resurrection, he has conquered sin and death and the law and everything that stood against us. And so once we are saved, there is no need to fear sin. Sometimes I wonder whether we kind of tread around just worrying about sin and what if it gets a hold of me, that kind of thing. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. We are new creations. Sin has absolutely no authority over us at all. But sin is like a little weed that tries to grow back through the cracks, tries to take root again in our lives. And we all know that we are tempted. We're tempted. A thought will pop into your head or um, you'll be tempted to walk off with a massive plasma screen from John Lewis and, uh, and we'll run after you. Yeah, you're tempted by maybe... Maybe, maybe. But that temptation to sin will arise because we still live in the world. And what we do with that thought is crucial. That's where victory comes. And, but we're, absol- we're under absolutely no obligation to, to welcome this sin in, welcome that thought, entertain it in any way. Because that has no power over us. But if we do entertain it, if we do welcome it in and, and pursue that line of reasoning, that line of thought, then we need to get on our knees and confess our sin and repent. Why? Because we're taking ground for the kingdom. We're allowing the kingdom to advance again. So we have the victory, but there are still wars which we fight as we go through life. That's okay. And that's where repentance is a continued thing. And so the emphasis that we have on initial repentance is fine. It is important. And we've got to realise what a massive shift there is in people's thinking at that point. But we mustn't underestimate the need to continue to repent and to continue to wage this war against things which would seek to throw us off course. So repentance clears the way for the kingdom to advance. And thirdly, repentance flows out of being satisfied in God. This is amazing, really. That true repentance 
has to flow out of understanding how supremely satisfying God is. It has to. Because otherwise we get ourselves tied up in a mess about it's all about fruit or it's all about saying the right things or it's all about doing confession or, or whatever, whatever it is. If we're not convinced that God is supremely satisfying, then that will mean that we allow ourselves to pursue other pleasures. We often see, don't we, um, on the news, convicted criminals weeping as their sentence is read out and they're taken off to prison. I, I wonder what they're weeping for. Are they, are they weeping because they are, are now so in love with righteousness that they, you know, that just, oh, I can't believe I did that. Or is it more that they've been condemned and sentenced and they fear the punishment that has come? It's a loss of freedom. It's a, a loss of the things which they used to, used to be able to enjoy. A loss of the freedom to do unrighteousness, maybe. I don't know. Are they, are they weeping because they're truly repentant or just sorry they got caught? You see, repentance is so much deeper than just being sorry for something that we've done wrong. <laughs> See this daily. Well, yeah, no, daily in my family. <laughs> so we have a four-year-old son who knows that if you say sorry, that is a good thing to say. At the moment, the tone of sorry is often along the lines of sorry when he's, you've caught him doing something wrong, which I don't think sounds sincere. Maybe it does to you, but... <laughs> I think that he is saying sorry to avoid punishment rather, or to hope to avoid punishment rather than because he is truly repentant and about to change the way he is going to live. Something we're working on. <laughs> Feel free to help. He realises that he has done something wrong but still wants to carry on doing it, and at the next opportunity will. And sorry is some way of getting out of it. That's not repentance. It's not repentance. True repentance weeps at the fact that we fall short of God's holiness. True repentance is motivated, yes, by a deep remorse for sin, um, the fact that we have turned away from the one who is able to satisfy and the fact that we've given ourselves to something that is fleeting and empty and ultimately dead. True repentance is motivated by realising that we are only satisfied in him. And I want to look at two biblical examples just to finish. The first is Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's psalm of confession repentance that he penned after he'd committed adultery, lied, murdered, um, and a number of other things. It, it wasn't a great period in David's life. And he pens this. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read a fair amount of it. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. <laughs> Good starting point. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, that my sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And he continues in that sort of vein. In verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. He sees his sin. It is there before him. He knows that he has done wrong. He pleads for forgiveness. Above all, he wants to know the presence of God and he wants the joy of his salvation back. And I find the word restore in verse 12 very powerful. He can only pray restore because he knew what it was like. He knew what it was like to to be in the presence of God, to commune with God. He was described as friend of God. He knew the joy of salvation, and yet this sin has got in the way. This sin has meant that, that something of that joy of salvation has been lost, and so he prays restore it. I think what we see here is David recognising that he is only satisfied in God, and that's what brings him to repentance, so that he can be restored into that relationship. See, repentance flows out of being satisfied in God. The second example that I want to look at is Revelation chapter 2. I mentioned this earlier. These chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are are letters which Jesus dictates um, in this vision to to John. Letters to seven churches. And uh, in this second one to Ephesus, he writes this in verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Wow. You've left your first love and so Jesus urging to this church before he says repent is remember. Remember, remember that it is only in him that you are fully satisfied. Remember your first love and from where you've fallen, then repent. You see, repentance flows out of being satisfied in God. And I think once you have tasted something of the goodness of God, once you've known how satisfying he is, nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think it means three things. These are very brief. Firstly, I think our gospel must begin with repentance. I think that the church in the West in general has gone weak on repentance. Alpha is awesome, but there isn't much about repentance in there. After we have proclaimed the message of the cross, the glorious salvation and freedom and life that there is in Jesus, the first thing we need to say is repent. 
the model of John the Baptist, Jesus and the early church. I would say if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. We need to proclaim repentance. Secondly, we need to deal with sin quickly in our lives. We mustn't allow it to fester and grow. We've currently got a leak in our conservatory roof. I've got a couple of options. I could just ignore it and hope that it doesn't rain. (laughs) Turns out Solihull isn't known for that. Um, Or we could fix it. If I don't fix it, it's going to get worse and it's going to create more damage. Sin is exactly like that. If you don't deal with it, it takes root and it creates more damage than there was originally. So deal with sin quickly. And thirdly, be satisfied in God. That's the root of it all, is be satisfied in God. Learn to dwell in his presence. Learn to just linger with the Holy Spirit. Learn to to get into this and just allow it to speak to you. He loves you. Oh, how he loves you. What an awesome way to finish worship. I didn't want to stop. He loves you. Oh, how he loves you. That is lingering in his presence. Knowing that he and he alone satisfies. He and he alone satisfies. So repentance is a change of mind that clears the way for the kingdom of God to advance and flows out of being satisfied in God. 